From the studios of WORQ in Wisconsin, this is the Stand Up For The Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up For The Truth. My name is Mary Danielson, and I am your host for today's podcast. I'm so glad you joined us. We are so glad you joined us. After looking at a somewhat eclectic mix of headlines this week, I decided to divide the program up into two kind of distinct halves. I'm going to call the first half, You Can't Make This Stuff Up. Of course, at this point in world history, every day is kind of You Can't Make This Stuff Up Day. Uh, we could also call it The World Doesn't Work the Way I Thought It Did Day. Um, so more information on that as we go. Uh, then after the break, I want to do something a little different. I want to connect some dots regarding a segment of history that is so fascinating, I think it might give you some perspective on why the world doesn't work the way we thought. I'm going to call that segment, What Could Possibly Go Wrong? So I hope you're with me for the hour. I promise a fascinating rabbit hole or two. Uh, first, I want to wish Israel a happy birthday. Israel is going to be 75 on April the 25th. Now, over there, um, over there, it's the 25th of April. Uh, May 14th is the actual date on the Western calendar, but Israel is on a 360-day year, so everything floats around over there. So uh, at this point, it's April 25th, they're going to be 75, and when I think about Israel and the modern miracle that she is, and a prophetic timekeeper, and having had the great privilege of going there a couple of times, uh, there are a few verses that come to mind, and I, I just find these verses to be wonderful. Psalm 48, 12 to 14. It says, walk about Zion and go all around her, count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. And then the second couple of verses here is Psalm 122, 6 to 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, Peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So those are some wonderful, wonderful uh, edifying verses about Israel. So let's take a little bit of a look here at what's going on in Israel, because it seems that a boiling point is approaching. I don't know if you noticed what's going on over there. Most recently, we saw some upheaval when Netanyahu attempted to make good on an election promise that he would initiate judicial reforms. Well, that sounds simple enough, right? Well, Hal Lindsey has an excellent article from Sunday entitled Anarchy Stirs in Israel. And I'm just going to read a little bit of this for you. Uh, this from Hal Lindsey. Um, <clears throat> the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, recently said, Israel is in the throes of a profound crisis. He spoke of civil war and said the abyss is within touching distance. Civil war, abyss, is it really that bad in Israel? It all centers on judicial reform. Extreme leftists protested proposed reforms by rioting in the streets. Others on the left protested peacefully but in large numbers. Like the nation's president, many speak of civil war and anarchy. Protests occurred in places you'd never expect. Elite military officers walked off the job one Sunday in March. Many of Israel's reservists have refused to report for duty. Meanwhile, Israel's enemies watch and feel emboldened. Terrorists rampaged within Israel and a missile barrage hit from without. 
The result of all this has been to effectively thrust us forward on God's end times timetable. Uh, Netanyahu's government won the majority in the last election partly because they promised the very judicial reforms now being protested. Voters chose the conservative coalition not despite reforms, but at least partly because of them. Reforms would allow the Knesset, which is Israel's parliament, to overrule Supreme Court decisions. The Knesset would also be given more of a say in who becomes a member of that court. He goes on to say, um, when Americans hear that a parliamentary body would have the ability to overrule the Supreme Court, they usually think, well, that's unconstitutional. They forget that Israel has no constitution, and Israel's present method for choosing members of the court mostly leaves out any form of accountability to the people. What does this mean, and why do we care who picks Supreme Court justices in Israel? Most of us figure... Um, you know, that it's, well, it's a political issue. It's internal. And so then we just hit the snooze button on our smoke alarms. Well, the answer might surprise you. And I didn't know any of this. Um, Israel is not a constitutional republic. Israel does not have a constitution. So their Supreme Court is immune in a way. Well, it is immune to their national elections and it's free to take on any case it wants. What it does take on is cases from nonprofits. We call them NGOs in foreign countries funded by the likes of George Soros, the Rockefeller Fund, or governments such as the U.S. and the EU. Now, Soros, just a quick note here, really hates Israel. He wants to see the destruction of Israel. He has a son named Alexander who is taking up the cause. Um, but how it works, and there's plenty out there you can read about um, George Soros and, and him interfering in Israel. But how it works is now a foreign left-leaning NGO can try and stop an Israeli policy put in place by their own elected government. Now, it could be a ruling on settlement building or cracking down on terrorism. Uh, even if this policy or legislation has nothing to do with that foreign government, the Israeli Supreme Court can actually take the case and rule for a foreign entity. And I know that just sounds strange, but this is not called warfare. It's called lawfare. And there are websites devoted to helping understand what lawfare is. Uh, and those who are protesting this last, uh, well, several weeks now, and they're back at it, are left-wing anarchists who want to control Israeli politics. Uh, and so there's the question hanging in the air. Should Israel's Supreme Court write laws or their legislature? You know, where are the checks and balances that you'd expect in a nation like Israel? And it wasn't always like this. Um, but at least a constitution would provide some guardrails, right? Um, and I don't know, to me, this seems like pure legalized corruption, but that's just my... Two shekels. But the bottom line here is let's cut to the chase. The Biden administration, the EU, and other governments use this unaccountable Supreme Court to control Israeli policy. Uh, Netanyahu, by attempting to uh, reform the Israeli Supreme Court and restore democracy to Israel, was threatening these leftist tools of control, to be sure. But Netanyahu has poked the bear. So judicial reform uh, is a line in the sand for Israel's enemies who would no longer be able to use their puppets to overrule the will of the Israeli people. So now with Passover having concluded, let's see where this goes. And um, I think that's just sort of an eye-opening thing on what's going on. It's kind of complicated, but uh, we'll just leave that there and move on to the next thing. Um, a couple of articles here. Uh, two of them actually kind of go together. Uh, one of them is from Front Page Magazine. And it's called the Biden 10-Step Plan for Global Chaos. Wow. And the subtitle of it is The Self-Inflicted Disasters Leading to a New Chinese Order. And this, these stories are actually huge. They're, they're 
quite monumental. Um, the, the other story, uh, which I will get to right after, is from Gatestone Institute, and that's entitled, Biden has abandoned the Middle East to China and Russia. So let's see what's going on here, because there are some sea changes going on over there, and we have to keep an eye on these things. Again, the Biden 10-step plan for global chaos uh, leading to a new Chinese order. And they ask a few questions out of the gate before we get to the 10 points. So let's just go through this and... Uh, uh, here are some of the questions. Why is French President Emmanuel Macron cozying up to China while trashing his oldest ally, the U.S.? Why is there sudden talk of discarding the dollar as the global currency? Why are Japan and India saying they cannot follow the United States' lead in boycotting Russian oil? Why is the president of Brazil traveling to China to pursue what he calls a beautiful relationship? Why is Israel suddenly facing attacks from its enemies in all directions? Why are there suddenly ongoing Chinese threats towards Taiwan? Why did Saudi conclude a new pact with Iran, its former arch enemy? Why was Egypt secretly planning to send rockets to Russia for use in Ukraine, according to leaked Pentagon papers? Since when did Russians talk nonstop about the potential use of a tactical nuclear weapon? Why and how, in just two years, have confused and often incoherent President Joe Biden and his team created such global chaos? Well, that is the question. It goes on to say, let's answer by listing 10 ways by which America lost all deterrence. Number one, Biden abruptly pulled all U.S. troops from Afghanistan, and he left behind to the Taliban hundreds of Americans and thousands of pro-American Afghans. Biden abandoned billions of dollars in U.S. equipment, the most extensive air base in Central Asia, recently retrofitted for $300 million and a $1 billion embassy. Our government called such a debacle a success. The world disagreed and saw only humiliation. Number two, the Biden administration allowed a Chinese altitude, high-altitude spy balloon to traverse the continental U.S. spying on key American military installations. The Chinese were defiant when caught and offered no apologies. In response, the Pentagon and the administration simply lied about how China had surveilled top-secret sites. Number three, in March 2021, at an Anchorage, Alaska mini-summit, Chinese diplomats unleashed a relentless barrage at their stunned and mostly silent American counterparts. They lectured the timid Biden-Edmund diplomats about American toxicity and hypocrisy, and they have defiantly refused to explain why and how their virology lab birthed the COVID-19 virus that killed tens of millions worldwide. Number four, in June 21, in response to Russian cyber attacks against the U.S., Biden meekly asked Russian President Putin to at least make off-limits specific critical American infrastructure. Not all, just specific. Number five, when asked what he would do if Russia invaded Ukraine, Biden replied the reaction would depend on whether the Russians conducted a minor incursion. Again, we're looking at the 10, ten ways, uh, the Biden 10-step plan for global chaos um, number six, um, between 20 and 21 and 22, Biden insulted and bragged that the, he would not meet with Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia and one of our oldest and most valuable allies in the Middle East. We're going to get to more about that, um, later. This, this is a huge turning point here for geopolitical, um, in the Eastern Hemisphere. For uh, number seven, for much of 21, the Biden admin announced it was eager and ready to offer concessions to re-enter the dangerous Iran nuke deal when Iran has joined China and Russia 
in a new geostrategic partnership. Number eight, almost immediately upon inauguration, the administration moved the U.S. away from Israel, restored financial aid to radical Palestinians, and publicly and privately alienated the current Netanyahu government. Number nine, in serial fashion, Biden stopped all construction on the border wall and opened the border. During the 2019 presidential primary, he made it known that illegal aliens were welcome to enter the U.S., and some six to seven million did. And number 10, in the last two years, the Pentagon has embarked on a woke agenda. The Army is short by 15,000 in its annual recruitment quota. The defense budget has not kept up with inflation. One of the most significant intelligent leaks in U.S. history just occurred from the Pentagon. And all every one of those um, should make our nation quake in our boots. Uh, and it goes on to say, but the examples explain well enough why our emboldened enemies do not fear us. Our triangulating allies judge us as unreliable and calculating neutrals assume America is in descent and too dangerous to join. Yet without America, the result is a new Chinese order. How interesting is that? And what goes hand in hand with this article is this other one from Gatestone Institute. And this is from April 19th. Biden has abandoned the Middle East to China and Russia. Um, and it goes on to say, in the absence of any desire on the part of the Biden admin to support the Saudis, for decades one of Washington's most important allies in the region, China has moved quickly to fill the diplomatic vacuum to launch its own initiative to restore ties with Iran. The fact that the Chinese can pull off a diplomatic coup involving a country that was formerly a key ally of the U.S. serves as a devastating indictment of the Biden administration's incompetence. At the same time, Biden made it clear that his main policy goal in the region was to resurrect the flawed nuclear deal with Iran, a move the Saudis responded to with utter dismay. Biden left Riyadh empty-handed, prompting the Saudis to cut their losses with the White House and look for alliances elsewhere. And it goes on to say the Biden men may have lost interest in the Middle East, but it's not a sentiment shared by rival powers such as China and Russia. While U.S. President Joe Biden has shown nothing but contempt for long-standing allies in the region, both China and Moscow have been quick to exploit Washington's willful neglect to their own advantage. By far the most startling change to the political landscape of the Middle East has been Beijing's role in negotiating the restoration of diplomatic ties between Saudi and Iran. And they were, until recently, sworn enemies. So things are changing rapidly over there. Um, Some of the media gets it, saying things like, this is the most upside-down development anyone could have imagined. And according to one source, represents a shift that left heads spinning in capitals around the globe. Alliances and rivalries that have governed diplomacy for generations have, for the moment, at least been upended. The U.S. wasn't even invited to attend any of this. Uh, we've been cut out of the deal. This is a changing global order, and that is not an overstatement. You know, it kind of sounds hollow at this point to simply say elections have consequences, which they do. That's still true. Uh, but we're way past that, I do believe. And we could spend an hour just on China alone uh, and what this means for America and how we got here. Uh, but abandoning uh, traditional allies in the Middle East has played right in the hands of Russia, China, and Iran. You can check uh, this article out for yourselves at gatestoneinstitute.org, and uh, it's not going to get any better over there. All right, I want to switch gears completely here. I want to introduce you to a man named Jeff 
Childers. No relation to Elisa, who's been on this podcast before. He is an attorney in Florida, and he is a believer. And Jeff believes that our rights don't come from our government, but from our creator. And this belief has altered the trajectory of his life starting in 2020. Now, up until then, Jeff uh, was a corporate litigation attorney, but early on in the pandemic, he was watching a county commission meeting, and he saw them pass the first county mask mandate in the state of Florida. And it dawned on him, like many of us, that there is no way that that was constitutional. Even though he didn't practice constitutional law at the time, he thought, a mask mandate? I mean, that's that's insane. So he gave himself over to studying constitutional law to at least see if there was something he could do to launch a legal challenge. Now, only two weeks later, after he saw this meeting, he filed his very first complaint ever with a government entity. His peers thought he was crazy. Uh, and a firestorm in, ensued after that. But he won on appeal. Now, this was the summer of 2020, at the height of the mask hysteria. And in the end, he finds himself the first attorney in the nation to win a case against mask mandates. Then he took on vaccine mandates, and he won the first preliminary injunction against a government vaccine, man, vaccine mandate in the country. It was a vaccinate or terminate policy. And all this based on something he truly felt the Lord was leading him to do. All of a sudden, both he and his wife were finding, you know, that people who were never interested in day-to-day local government activities were getting shaken up because all of a sudden it seemed like the world didn't work the way they thought it did. People's worldviews were getting shaken up all because of a sudden, um, because all of a sudden they were being controlled by an uncontrollable virus and the decisions being made for them didn't make a lot of sense. So he, Jeff, uh, this gentleman, continues to win case after case on behalf of the average American. He says every win is, a, is an important block added to the fortress of freedom. Now, when these crazy mandates were going on, I mean, my first thought, and maybe yours too, was where are all the attorneys? There must be ample opportunity to sue uh, and win against outrageous heavy-handed lockdowns and masks and uh Jab mandates. Well, late in March, this March, uh, Jeff took part in the COVID litigation conference, the first ever gathering of attorneys committed to taking on COVID-19 lawsuits. Uh, the 275 in attendance came from 38 states and Canada and Australia to listen to experts on how to regain these pre-COVID freedoms. He said the group energy registered somewhere between a tent revival and the optimism of a house flipping seminar. Organizers were the Mendenhall Law Group and Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. One of the sponsors was Children's Health Defense, led by RFK Jr. Um, I recommend his site for a daily read um, because there is a lot of great information, videos, frontline news, technology news. Uh, and that's childrenshealthdefense.org. You can check that out. So at this point, uh, the COVID battle lines have finally shifted from the emergency room to the courtroom, uh, at least until the next so-called pandemic hits the streets. And then we could all be doubling down again on legal issues. But bravo to Jeff. And all that to say at the top of my list of things to read six days a week is Jeff Childers' sensational blog. It's called Coffee and COVID. It's a compendium of news and witty sarcasm that is impossible to resist and thoroughly enlightening. So um, go there, subscribe to that for his laser-sharp commentary. Again, that's Jeff Childers. Speaking of the next big thing, COVID variants. By variant, we mean genetic changes in a virus that look like a family tree when they are mapped out. You know, to the big pharma behemoth, it means 
big bucks in booster shots. And so far, we have been subjected to variants named Alpha, Delta, Delta Plus, Delta Plus Plus, and Omicron. And the latest, and here's where we find that we truly cannot make this stuff up, as of April, the new variant is called Arcturus, which is named after a star, not a Greek letter. So it must be a truly galactic variant, that's all I can think. It's out of India, and it's been put on the CDC's watch list. But here's how it is truly different, but you have to promise not to laugh. The unique symptom is itchy, watery eyes. So if you're like me and you get witchy, uh, itchy, watery eyes this time of year, um, I guess you must need a COVID test and a mask to get through that, and I am not making that up. And I'm also not making this up. Oregon Zoo pre-orders COVID jabs for its animals. Seriously? Uh, the San Diego Zoo has given experimental vaccines to its apes. Uh, almost three dozen zoos are ordering vaccines for their animals. This was reported back in 2021. About a week or so ago, here was the headline, Oregon Zoo Black Bear Dies Suddenly of Cardiac Arrest. So I'm just going to leave that right there again. Can't make this stuff up. But at least Switzerland has the common sense now to no longer recommend the jabs for their citizens. They say most people have had the bug, and they even add that many have, quote-unquote, natural immunity, which wasn't even considered a couple of years ago. Uh, so... Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, we're getting closer to a break here, but uh, I want to do a little bit of teaser for the next segment because, um, well, you'll see. We're going to go down the rabbit hole in the next segment. Back in the 1990s, I started to look into the subject of genetically modified food. A company called Monsanto was formed in 1901, 1901 already, by a man named John Queenie, his wife, uh, her wife's maiden name was Monsanto, and that's how the company got its name. And by that time, and we're talking 1901 here, uh, John Queenie already was a 30-year veteran of the pharmaceutical industry. Think about that, 1870, uh, the beginning of the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm going to go into that in quite a bit of detail in the next segment because it's very interesting. But one of the first things he did was to formulate saccharin, and sell it to Coca-Cola as an artificial sweetener. He also introduced caffeine into soft drinks. Uh, Monsanto, and this is key, has a history of working closely with the U.S. government, including doing research on the Manhattan Project to develop the world's first nuclear bomb. Other chemical contributions include aspartame, Agent Orange, PCBs, bovine growth hormone, I mean, if we stop there, we could have plenty to talk about. Uh, but the real story, in light of Bible prophecy, starts with, surprisingly enough, uh, the number one herbicide in the world, Roundup. Now, that's the trademark name for a chemical called glyphosate, and it was manufactured by Monsanto. It's important to note that Roundup kills everything it touches, not just weeds, but it, it kills crops as well. Well, back in 1996, Monsanto introduced something called Roundup Ready Soybeans. Uh, it's a genetically altered bean, the first bioengineered crop approved in the U.S. Monsanto scientists tinkered with the genetic makeup of the seeds so that when sprayed with Roundup, the soybean plants are left intact. Now, to accomplish this, they place a Roundup-resistant gene into the seed, and it changes 
its DNA. And so that that's a milestone in our world. Uh, GMO crops, I remember when they first came out, there was just a whole lot of debate about do we label your food in the grocery store as GMO? What do we do about this? Well, these crops don't seed themselves. The seeds are patented by a company. Well, what happens when a seed is patented by a company? Um, it doesn't, the, the plant just doesn't reseed itself. You actually have to buy, the farmers have to buy the seed from the company that owns the patent. Now, if you're thinking that's a recipe for famine, you're absolutely correct because now with GMO seeds, if the farmer, if for some reason the company says, no, we're not going to sell you seeds, um, or the farmer can't afford seeds and this is causing them to go bankrupt, um, you can see a recipe for global famine. Um, I mean, obviously seeds were never meant to be owned by a company. And there's just so much danger and changes to our food supply. There's a book out there called The Hundred Year Lie. It's a secular book, but it talks a lot about the history of all these things. It's very, very interesting. But in the second half here, I'm going to take a biblical perspective on some of this. And some things are really going to surprise you. I know they really surprised me. Like I said, I've been looking into this for many, many years. But when a GMO plant pollinates as well, the pollen also travels. And so if there's an organic farmer next to the, you know, the, the GMO farmer, you know, because, because of how this works, that pollen can override the organic farm pollen. It's very interesting because this might sound like a strange uh, comparison, but in a, a world that where sin is the default position, if I am sick and I have a cold, I can breathe that cold on you. If you're well, you can't breathe wellness on me. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is a default position. And so this has changed our world. This has changed our food. They now, uh, before a harvest, this um, glyphosate on commercial grain and seed oil farms, this glyphosate is sprayed to initiate the death to the crop so that they can harvest it. I know what you're thinking. Of course, now there's going to be residuals uh, of this product. And farming has changed. Corporate farms, everything about it has changed tremendously. So I'm going to get into something very interesting, like I said, when we come back. Um, I want to take a minute here and just uh, promote uh, the Bible Prophecy Conference at Calvary Chapel uh, next week, April 28 to 30. Uh, we have T. McMahon coming in. We have Chris Quintana, Jeff Sowald, David Fiorazzo is one of our speakers, Rob Yardley, Tommy Ice. And I think it's time for, uh, it's a great time for encouragement, for fellowship, uh, for understanding how late the hour is. Um, it's $35 per person. You can register, uh, at, at, well, you can register at the door. Or you can, um, uh, go to ccappleton.org and register ahead. And I know there will be a lot of different topics. Uh, again, like I said, a lot of different encouragement. Uh, so we definitely want to um, promote that for you. And if you're interested in coming, uh, we would love to see you next week. Also, um, next week is Q-Drive here at Stand Up For The Truth. So we just appreciate all you listeners so very, very much. We can't do what we do without you. So I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. Um, but again, uh Something very, very interesting, and especially in the light of prophecy, because the Bible, the book that we hold dear, you know, 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. 
I mean, the book has no contradictions, no historical or scientific error. Um, it has that scarlet thread theme through it of God's great love and salvation available to all those who repent. Um, and if that's not enough, these books are woven throughout with prophetic forthtelling. Events described that have yet to take place. Various events that were future for most generations in one scope or another. I mean, Christianity is based on the infallibility of the scriptures. And it's the only religion, quote unquote, that addresses the sin issue. And it depends on the literal fulfillment of events. If God's prophets aren't 100% correct, then the Bible is not true. So it's important uh, for every believer to understand what the prophets have said, what's been fulfilled, what is yet to be fulfilled or in the process of being fulfilled. I know prophecy isn't a hot topic in a lot of the churches today, but wow, what an amazing time to be alive. What an incredible subject prophecy is. And we can study these things, and we can we can understand these things. And, um, you know, the number of prophecies and scriptures about Messiah, Jesus being a fulfillment of all that God promised, you know, it's about 300, um, most of them made before he was even born. Um, the mathematical possibility of just one man accidentally fulfilling or purposely manipulating over 300 predictions written 100 years before his birth. If it's an accident or manipulative, you've lost me already, and there's no reason to believe. But God gave us brains. He expects us to use them, and uh, neither is true. So we'll be right back, and we're going to talk more about what I just started. Our social media pages are shadow banned. Thanks for your prayers and sharing our posts at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth today. I'm your host, Mary Danielson. And um, we got a rabbit trail we're going to hippity-hop down into, <laughs> if, if that makes any sense. Uh, we was talking a little bit uh, earlier about uh, the history of Monsanto, and it goes back quite a bit further than a lot of us realize, but... Let's go back to the future for the rest of the story, which starts with a man named William Perkin, a test tube, and a piece of silk. Now, when he was a teenager in the 1850s, William was just one of many who found chemistry and its potential for new discoveries an appealing vocation. Keep in mind that chemistry at the time, or alchemy, was just coming out of the Dark Age. But at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, new ideas were emerging, and those who who really could tell that there were great changes on the horizon, were looking for anything that might bring them fame and fortune. You know, better living through chemistry uh, was the adage of the day. Uh, Perkin was one of the bright young students at Britain's Royal College for Chemistry, and his professor was August von Hoffmann. And at this time, the British Empire was colonizing the far corners of the globe, and one of their more pressing issues was how to treat the soldiers who came down with malaria while serving the empire. So the common treatment for that was quinine, and quinine is found in the bark of a certain tree, and it's very expensive to produce, or it was anyway. Now, many over the years uh, have tried to synthesize it, but von Hoffman was convinced that the answer could be found in something called coal tar. Coal tar was a black sludge that was the byproduct of burning and distilling coal into something called gaslight, which was transforming homes and businesses after dark in the 19th century. So coal tar was being investigated at the time for any and all possible uses. And there was, you know, because there was so much of it, um, von Hoffman was sure that one of its derivatives had a chemical formula close to quinine. And yes, the hydroxychloroquine that is considered 
controversial for COVID uh, is the very same valuable family of chemicals. I mean, what goes around comes around, right? But for some reason, um, he felt compelled to take a piece of silk and stain it with this purple compound. Not only did it take to the material, but it remained color fast, and it was beautiful. And this was revolutionary for the times, and synthetics were born. So we have purple and scarlet on silk, and that's just what the royals uh, of Europe and the Victorians were clamoring for. I mean, you look at those old Victorian snapshots, they're all wearing nothing but heavy black. So the upholstery that you sit on, the jeans that you wear, the color of your walls in your home, they all owe their color to William Perkin, who not surprisingly became a very wealthy man by the time he was 30. He is hailed as the father of the modern consumer society. Now, the Bible tells us that in the last days, there's going to be a global economy and a consumer and trade-driven monstrosity made up of every product imaginable. And our commercial world was unthinkable before William Perkin. And, you know, if our story ended here, you know, we could all just go home and appreciate our denim a little bit more. But here in the last days, we know so much more. Perkins' one big mistake was a case of loose lips combined with really bad patent laws. And soon scientists from all over Europe were beginning their own experiments in breaking down coal tar. So the genie was out of the bottle. And Germany, in particular, was eager, uh, was eager to have an identity on the world stage. So by 1876, Germany was a brand new nation then. They had 17 synthetic dye companies, and the world is never going to be the same because of their success. The top company was Frederick Bayer and Company, who produced the world's number one scarlet dye. But soon, seeing that this field was becoming so competitive, Bayer felt that it was time to start making something other than dyes. And you already know where this is headed. So with a purely profit margin agenda... Bayer began to turn out a compound that would ultimately be called aspirin, and the multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry was born. Now, in 1901, Bayer came up with another health tonic made from an opium derivative. Claiming it was the best cough medicine ever made, they called it heroin to reflect the heroic way it made a person feel. It went for about $5 an ounce, and on a similar note, Novartis Labs marketed LSD, in 1938 to treat psychiatric patients. And they admit they had no idea what it did. But, you know, they sponsored most of the 60s, uh, which simply proves that in the hands of sinful men, there's always going to be the chance that things could take a turn from helpful to harmful, from beneficial to toxic, and how many lives were ruined by this sort of wickedness. I mean, we're never going to know. By the start of World War I, Germany had employed tens of thousands in their chemical industry, and they controlled 90% of global dye production, and they flooded the market with pharmaceuticals and fertilizers and paints. Now, a gentleman named Fritz, Fritz Haber, he's the inventor of nitrogen fertilizer and poison pesticide gases, and we older folks know it as DDT. Um, and he was asked to oversee the merging of industrial chemistry with military uses. This is where it gets... Um, really bad. German plants were reproducing chlorine gas to make dyes, and there was plenty to go around. And, you know, the Germans would do anything to come out on top militarily in those days, and so squads of men were trained, and they soon arrived on the front lines in Belgium, along with 5,000 canisters of chlorine gas. And when the wind was right, the cylinders were opened, and by nightfall, over 5,000 Allied troops had died horrible, painful deaths. 
Bayer supplied the Germans with pharmaceuticals, dyes, explosives, and poison gas. This is the very same Bayer that still makes a lot of common ph- pharmaceuticals such as Cipro, Xarelto, Claritin, Alka-Seltzer, and Aleve. Uh, in 2016, Bayer bought out the GMO giant Monsanto for $66 billion. So they no longer exist, but they are owned by Bayer. Bayer's profits average around $20 billion per year. So let's go back to World War I here. Germany had lost a war. They were in desperate economic straits. And they offered to share their fertilizers and dyes. And in the midst of a global Spanish flu outbreak, we're talking 1918, they were willing to share their aspirin with the rest of the world. And as a side note, history is finding out that unregulated aspirin dosages back then probably made that pandemic worse as people bled out and they suffered toxic side effects that aspirin is now known for. Uh, people probably thought if some is good, a lot must be better. And so um, endless lists of side effects were not, uh, they were still far into the future. And no one really knew what the aspirin was going to do or what people will do when they're desperate. Uh, my grandfather died of the flu in, in back in those days. So how much devastation was wrought by this aspirin miracle, we may never know. So making profits off of a pandemic and making health matters worse with synthetic chemicals isn't really new at all. Well, Germany soon believed that if they were going to develop and market new products, something a little more radical would still have to take place. The chemical industry at that time was made up of many, many independent companies. Well, how about this? How about a powerful, financially massive merger to combine their unholy profits and production? Mergers of this magnitude today are called cartels. Well, by 1929, a massive chemical cartel came into being called IG Farben, and it doubled in size by the start of World War II because Wall Street and America gave a lot of financial assistance, and they wheeled and dealed for a piece of the synthetics pie. Soon, there were over 2,000 cartel agreements between Farben and foreign firms. We're, we're talking Standard Oil, Alcoa, DuPont, GM, Dow, Kodak, Firestone, Goodyear, Glidden, Kellogg's, Monsanto, Nestle, Procter & Gamble, and hundreds more. And the companies that Farben owned outright include Bayer, Bristol-Myers, Squibb, many, many more pharmaceutical and vitamin companies. Now, along comes a young German politician whose one desire is to see Germany become great again. Hitler knew that the only way to put Germany back on top was to have at his disposal the massive resources represented by this Farben cartel. Armaments, explosives, mustard gas, chlorine gas, aluminum, synthetic fuels, rubber. Hitler needed the IG, the IG needed Hitler, and Farben officers became Nazi party members. And the most horrifying aspect of this entire chain of events is the invention, production, and distribution of Zyklon B gas used to kill the Jews, which was developed by pesticide king Fritz Haber, patented and licensed by Farben, and sold to Bayer. Now, in order to cement its global leadership with patented drugs, Farben tested their pharmaceutical substances on the Jews in Auschwitz, Dachau, and other camps. Enough Zyklon B to kill 200 million humans was produced and sold, and that's the equivalent of the entire population of the United States in 1970. And the profits, well, they were staggering. Following the Allied victory, the Nuremberg War Crime Tribunal commenced, and 24 managers and executives from Bayer and others were tried for crimes against humanity. Those who were really responsible for 60 million deaths in World War II were the Farben executives, and they received the mildest verdicts. Assets of Farben went to the Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan Trusts. 
giving them global control of post-war oil and pharma, pharma industries, the biggest cartel ever, and don't we know it. Now let's forward to our, for our own timelines here. Let's talk a little bit about the polio vaccine. Americans were scared to death of polio back in the 50s, and there are some um, documentaries out there. There's a lot been written about this. Uh, the road to the polio vaccine is a fascinating subject, and it's too complex, really, for our time here. But you might find one particular thread really interesting uh, in light of a subject matter. Back in 1954, a brilliant virologist, Bernice Eddy, along with her equally brilliant partner, Elizabeth Stewart, were the first researchers to isolate the first virus proven to cause cancer. Okay, now that year, the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, asked Dr. Eddy to direct the testing of the Salk polio vaccine on monkeys. There were two vaccines competing for the prize of being the official polio vaccine. Albert Sabin was one of these gentlemen. He believed it could contain a live polio virus. Jonas Salk believed it should be a dead virus. Uh, Dr. Eddy made the discovery that somehow the Salk vaccine had been contaminated with live polio and that the monkeys they were using it on had become paralyzed as a result. Now, she warned the NIH that the vaccine was virulent, but her concerns fell on deaf ears, and it was distributed by uh, Cutter Labs in California. That resulted in the worst polio outbreak in history. It infected 200,000 people, 70,000 delivered, uh, developed the full-blown uh, disease, and 20,000 children were paralyzed with 10 dead. And I think we've all seen those clips of, of children well, and adults in this thing called the iron lung where um, they couldn't move for many, many months on end, uh, hoping to be cured of that. Well, she, uh, uh, Bernice Eddy, warned the NIH that the vaccine was virulent, but her concerns fell on deaf ears. And it was so, then it was distributed by Cutter Labs. Um, okay, okay, uh, let me back here a little bit. Okay, let me go ahead. In 1961, uh, Bernice Eddy uh, discovered that a cancer-causing monkey virus uh, had contaminated 98 million sock vaccines. 98 million. I remember lining up for these polio, but well, by the time it got to me, they were sugar cubes. Some of you will remember either getting the shot or a sugar cube. Um, back in the, uh, I don't know, early 60s, we had to actually go to a church or go to a school. Uh, everybody had to get these vaccines. Um, instead of rewarding her for this discovery that there was a cancer-causing monkey virus in, in these sock vaccines, she was banned from her research, uh, and the information was buried. Why does that not surprise me? She attempted to get the information out as an urgent threat to public health, but she was stonewalled at every turn, uh, allowing Merck and Park Davis to continue to give this vaccine to millions of American adults and children. Perhaps their, I don't know, maybe their consciences eventually got the better of them because they stopped making the vaccines in mid-1961, but they didn't recall it. They were afraid of their reputations, of course, if anyone found out Americans were vaccinated with a cancer-producing virus. In the same way, I think that the effects of the uh, jabs today, no one is admitting, no one is admitting that, that uh, the sudden deaths could quite possibly be connected to the jabs and um, the boosters. So between 1961 and 1963, millions of baby boomers were vaccinated with potential cancer. 
And since those vaccines change DNA, you know, we think that it's new, the mRNA is new. It really isn't. Uh, these vaccines, uh, polio vaccines changed our DNA. Therefore, this virus is now part of the human genome. And we know this because it has been passed on to subsequent generations. One-fourth of healthy adults today have this virus in their system. Six out of every hundred children born between 1980 and 1995 are infected. It causes mesothelioma, bone cancers, brain cancers, prostate cancer, and lymphoma, all of which are up over 50% in baby boomers. And I think a lot of us seeing the rise in cancer, and it's probably not just one thing, but we've all scratched our heads over the years. You know, is it chemicals? Is it environmental? Is it genetic? Um, and it could be any and all of the above, but 50% of baby boomers, uh, they contaminated humanity, and they knew it, and they refused to admit it. And as you can imagine, Dr. Eddie was never allowed to speak publicly or do vaccine research ever again. Uh, today, uh, Bayer bought out Cutter Labs. It's the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. Also out of IG Farben from World War II, speaking of judgment, came the RU486 abortion pill. Now today, all we get for our trouble with Pfizer and Moderna is utter denial about the damages that they have caused. This is what I know, and this is how I got there, and everything that I have related to you is easily verified. It is a matter of history, and uh, many people have written on this. Um, and, of course, I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying you shouldn't take your meds or whatever it is you need to do regarding your family's health. You know, we're talking about a chemical load that our generation is carrying that previous generations did not. So don't let that be your takeaway today by any means. But here is what I find so interesting. Bioweapons of mass destruction like chlorine gas and pain relievers like aspirin, they come from the same compounds. How interesting that is that? This business of wounding and healing is a double-edged profit margin for this industry. And the sheer knowledge of the scope of this $500 billion a year business probably makes us all feel a little bit ill. So let me just uh, stitch this together. I'm going to go to Revelation 18, verses 11 and 12. And it starts out like this. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple silk and scarlet. How interesting is that? I'd read this verse many times, but the details didn't come to life until I dusted off a history file. Revelation 18.23, For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And again, you know where I'm going with this, if you know your Bible prophecy. The word sorcery in the original language is the Greek word pharmakia. That's where we get our, our word pharmacy. And the meaning is the administering of drugs or poison. Wounding and healing. You know, maybe a better name for this information would be, hmm, let's see what that does, which refers to the behavior of an entire industry that has from the beginning displayed a thorough disregard for life in favor of power and profits, making a name for themselves. And as we see these verses in Revelation, it's just going to continue on. So let's see what that does. Let's light a match to coal sludge. I wonder what that'll do. Let's push aspirin for a pandemic 
and see what that does. Heroin, LSD, we have no idea what that will do. That gas, that poison, well, maybe we'll win a war. We'll do some ethnic cleansing in the, in the process. World War I was called the chemist's war because um, that's when it all started, really, using chlorine gas and mustard gas on fellow humans. So all these things that started in the 1850s, probably much longer ago than most of us realized, um, actually produced the bloodiest century in world history when it comes to uh, wars. 170 years later, we have this novel or new virus. And we have people like Anthony Fauci, who I don't think we know the half of it, because he was in charge of some AIDS research back in the 80s. And that's another rabbit trail, if you want to look that up and see what he's responsible for that. So what does this novel and new virus do? Well, we don't know. Because this person had COVID for three weeks, another had it for three hours. You know, this person ends up on a ventilator, and that person just got a mild cold. This person had a stroke. This person had cardiac arrest. Another loses taste and smell for months on end, or years on end. And that's neurological. What kind of weird war is this anyway, right? Um, early on, they found that a certain genetic marker causes a person to have a stroke from COVID. <laughs> what kind of pre-existing lottery is that? You know, let's mandate masks. Let's lock down. Let's see what that does. Let's see what giving these shots to children does. It's just more of the same, you know, a vaccine. What could possibly go wrong? You know, what did God do? Well, the book of Revelation, Revelation 18. And um, I don't know, there's more to come, but it's a fascinating rabbit trail. If you have any comments or questions on any of it, you know, comments at standupforthetruth.com. Happy to read those. So with the time I have left, um, you know, I did promote the Prophecy Conference next weekend. And, you know, if, if your church doesn't teach prophecy, you can still undertake a systematic study of it on your own. I really, really encourage that. Because as I said at the end of the uh, first session, um, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, being the fulfillment of what God has promised in the Messiah, take those 300 prophecies, you know, again, made before he was even born. And I asked, what is the mathematical possibility of just one man accidentally fulfilling or even purposely manipulating over 300 predictions written hundreds of years before his birth? Well, Professor Peter Stoner, he lived from 1888 to 1980, he was chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College and chairman of the Science Division of Westmont College in the 50s. This man calculated the probability of one man fulfilling only a handful of the over 300 Messianic prophecies. In 1944, he published his research results in Science Speaks, Proof of the Accuracy of Prophecy in the Bible. Mr. Stoner concluded that the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies was one chance in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one followed by 17 zeros. Now, how about one person fulfilling just 48 of over 300 prophecies? Stoner calculated that the odds at one chance of this at one chance in 10 to the 157th power. That is a statistical impossibility. So he presents an illustration that should drive it all home. You know, take 10 to the 17th power, not just 10, but 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, lay them on the face of Texas, covering the whole state two feet deep. 
And he says, now, Mark, one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mess thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wants, but he has to pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. I mean, what chance would he have of getting that right one? I think you know the answer to that. It's the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in one man. Again, um, the chance that any one man would fulfill uh, 48 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And I believe that that is something that every person who thinks that believing in the God of the Bible as revealed through Jesus Christ is nothing more than blind faith needs to reconsider. And I think these are things that help us reason with people about our faith. Um, I don't know. I think sometimes with people that we share with, our testimony gets uh, a little too close for comfort. Um, they have that do not disturb sign on hanging up. And they can say, I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. And that can conveniently end any discussion on the need to heed the words of Jesus that you must be born again. Again, if if prophecy isn't fulfilled to 100%, the whole Bible is wrong and we are wasting our time. And God's not in the arm-twisting business. Uh, I just want to bring some reason to the matter. Uh, so you can, of course, people can believe what they want. They have a free will. But the Bible is still true. You know, let God be true and every man a liar. So this world is going to go on, you know, with or without uh, the, the unbeliever. But don't shut the door to God's word because it has the power to change us all utterly and completely from the inside out. Um, you know, these things are coming on the earth whether we're ready or not. You know, I like to say, are you ready for the future? Well, it is ready for you. Um, so, you know, there's just no shallow end in the pool of Christianity. It's, uh, it's just an amazing uh, thing that God has done for us. It's the only uh, faith, religion, that addresses the sin issue. Uh, prophecy is not the imaginings of human beings. God is the author of the universe. Is he so limited that he cannot communicate his plans, you know, with lowly humanity? If he wants to tell his creation of his plans ahead of time, he can do that. So let's wind this up. Uh, coming up tomorrow, John Haller. That's a replay. Again, Q Drive is next week. We can't do it without you. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast digest via email. We send them. Uh, once on Fridays, look for this subscribe link, sorry, on the front page of standfortheTruth.com. Prophecy Conference next week. Hope to see you there. Uh, and as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.